just reading the first two verses of this, the word of the living and true God. Let's hear it again this afternoon. Romans 12, beginning with verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you are well acquainted with various athletes. Uh, Many of you watch various sporting events. Some of you don't, and I apologize if you don't, and maybe this illustration will be lost on you. I don't think so. I think you can apply this illustration to just about anything. But what you do notice pretty rapidly, pretty quickly, when it comes to some of the top athletes in the world is that when they are under the greatest amount of strain, greatest amount of pressure, when they have to make that putt to win the Masters, when they have to get that hit to win the World Series, and of course it's the hit that the Yankees will get over the Blue Jays, of course they wouldn't be in the World Series. Okay, you have to know something about baseball to understand that. But what you notice about these people is that they seem to respond very well to it, not necessarily because of their gifting, but because they have mastered something and they have practiced something over and over and over again. And that is the fundamentals of the basics of their craft. It really doesn't matter whether it's a sporting event or some other hobby or skill that you have. Perhaps it's being a carpenter, perhaps it's practicing some medical field, whatever it may be, the real reason why these people are so good at what they do is because they don't, they're not ingenuitive and they're not innovative. They have simply mastered the basics of their trade. Well, the same is true for God's people in the Christian life. We have been given the basics. We have been given the means by which we live and walk the Christian life. They're not complicated. You've heard for three years now from me these things, not news. Nothing I say this afternoon is really going to be profound uh, or, uh, or shocking or, uh, or illuminating in the sense of newness. But God has given us the basics. And as a church, we must always remind ourselves of these basics. And if we fail to do that, we are prone to the efforts of the evil one to destroy. You see, we didn't invent these things. God gave them to us. And like any tool, he expects us to use them. And often when we get away from these basic things is when we find ourselves struggling as Christians as a church, as a people here in this world. And when the onslaught of life hammers you from whatever direction it may come, if you fail to rely on these simple and basic things, you will find yourself like a ship without a mooring or an anchor, wandering from place to place across the spectrum of this vast ocean we call life. Now, do you understand, of course, the, the failure, the, 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 what would happen to you if you fail to do these things? If you fail to master the basics of the Christian life, in which, by the way, you will never completely master in this life, but if you fail to lay hold of those things, 
you leave yourself open to the efforts of the evil one. Oftentimes, a failure to engage in the basics of the Christian faith results in lethargy. It sometimes results in apostasy from the faith. What are those basics? Well, they're pretty obvious, aren't they? Bible reading, prayer, corporate worship, the sacraments, the means of grace. The means of grace that we know from our shorter catechism, the word, sacraments, and prayer. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul, in context, is responding. He's not, uh, he is not creating law. He is giving to the church at Rome. He is not that Rome, the good Rome, not the bad Rome. He's giving to the church at Rome, uh, marching orders in response to the great work of salvation that God has done for them at that church. It's obvious, isn't it, the first 11 chapters of the book, just briefly outlining it, highlight for us the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of election, and he wraps it up in chapter 11 and moves into chapter 12 by applying all of these truths that we believe so emphatically and can articulate so well He applies them to the Christian experience. Frankly, brothers and sisters, it's easy to do theology. I know someone just shook their head no. It's easy to do theology. All i got to do is give you a list and a bunch of verses and have you memorize them and you got it. Here's the definition of justification. Here's the definition of sanctification. Here's the definition of... That's not hard. Living it is a whole different thing. And how is it we're going to do that depends on how well we understand and use the means that God has given uh, to his church. And so I want to show you these means, these primary means, foundational items given to you by God, which with careful and diligent use, you will find yourself as a strong and successful Christian in this world. Two points as we consider this, and I have preached this about three years ago, but I have reworked a lot of it um, for our purpose this afternoon. The church is different. The people are different. We are different by virtue of the fact that it's been three years. Two points. First, we'll consider the apostles' appeal, and then the means that God gives. So the apostles' appeal, this is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm just going to briefly dip into the exegesis of these two verses and then show you, by topical fashion, the means that God gives to the church to help us in our growth, not only individually, but as a body. You see, I'm concerned about you individually, but I'm also concerned about you corporately, as a church. But God has given these means to help both and cover both, and so we'll consider some of these this afternoon. First, the apostles' appeal. The context, as I've already mentioned, We've already seen the theology. It's a rich, strong argument, the magnum opus of the Apostle Paul, some would argue. It's all the way back in chapter 1, working all the way through into chapter 11. You get a heavy dose of theology. Frankly, that's the easy part of the book. When we get to chapter 12, we find a shift, a difference in 
approach and ideology. We see, really, what we ought to see in every sermon. We see uh, the theology now applied. You see, theology without application is really an abortion. Paul knows this, and so he does this here in Romans. He, not the only time he does this, if you just, just briefly, if you want to, if you flip over to the book of Ephesians, you'll see that he employs that same exact philosophy, and it's, again, not the only place he does it. It's pretty frequent with Paul, but for the first three chapters, by and large, Paul is dealing with difficult theological subjects. He deals with the electing work of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, very triune chapter. Trinity's all over chapter 1. He moves into chapter 2 to talk about the work of God in election and how that all comes to pass and the covenant relationship that exists between the people of no hope and the people with hope. And he gets to chapter 4. Notice, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you, what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What calling? Oh, the calling that he's outlined for the church in chapter 1, the calling that he's outlined for the church in chapter 2. That calling, the calling of election. Well, in Romans, he does pretty much the same thing. He details the theology of the book, first 11 chapters, and in chapter 12, we notice right away there in the opening this urgent appeal to the people. He's assuming a lot. He's assuming that they are Christians. He's speaking, writing to the visible church. And he says to them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Or very easily could be brothers and sisters. That's perfectly fine. But he assumes, of course, that they know the Lord. There's a certain sense in which visibly they are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. By virtue of the work of justification, sanctification, adoption, everything he's already talked about in the first half of Romans. And we know that he's applying it now because he uses that word, therefore, and I'm not going to use the phrase that gets worn out and tired. But obviously, he's connecting or linking the theology of the book to the application and practice of the Christian experience. And he goes into some detail about those things later into chapter 12 and 13 and 14. I'm going to deviate from Paul here in a moment and give you some other things that will help fill that. But there is, note, an urgency about it. I appeal to you, brothers. I beg you. I plead with you that you might heed these theological truths and then begin to practice them in your everyday life, whether it's individually, whether it's in your home as fathers, whether it's in your home as mothers, whether it's on the job, wherever it may be, that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord, that you live the theology you say you believe. It's a strong word in the original. It's, it's loaded with, with that, that begging mentality much like preaching should be. Appeal to the people. Plead with them that they might see the truth and they might respond accordingly. There's an attitude of the apostle that demonstrates its urgency. The urgency is rooted, of course, in the mercies of God. 
All that they have, all that, that, is, that Paul says about them is not because of anything that they have done, anything that, they, that is uh, part and parcel of their own labors or efforts. Again, that's theology. That's easy. He says, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you. Due to the mercy of God, due to his grace and work in your life that you need to live, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is not an oxymoron. I know it sounds like one. What's a living sacrifice? I mean, a sacrifice is dead by definition. But he calls it a living one. Here he's appealing directly to the whole idea of the temple in the tabernacle theme in which the people of God would bring an animal to, to have sacrificed, and of course that animal would be a substitute for them. They couldn't jump on the altar and die, then they would be dead. But the animal substitutes for them, but we already have a substitute, and so therefore we now, as living beings who have received the very mercy of God, we need to live as though our lives have been sacrificed. In what sense? Well, in the sense that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 is probably one of the earlier books, letters that he wrote. He's in prison. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. This is the idea. The sacrifice. Now, it's theologically charged. I'm not going to bore you with that right now, but I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Hmm. Pretty sure he's alive. But it's no longer I who live. But Christ, who lives in me, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is his mission statement. This is his appeal. This is his pleading for the church. It's his pleading for this church that we might live that way due to the mercy of God. We might live our lives as living sacrifice, which is, notice, described as holy and acceptable to God. Now, how is it possible that my life can be accepted as holy? How is it possible that, he, that God the Father, how can he accept me that way? Well, he's described all the reasons already in chapters 1 through 11. The way he does that, of course, is because of the justifying work, that act of justification that has come to us by faith, that imputed righteousness of Christ applied to me now. I am then, therefore, because of that, seen by God as holy and blameless. Positionally, theologically, that's where I am. And as such, then therefore, I have the Spirit of God, and I'm able to then therefore serve Him in this manner, which is my spiritual worship. You might have a little footnote in your Bible where it says, or your rational service, or as I prefer it, reasonable service. Reasonable. It's reasonable for a parent to ask a child to clean his bedroom. That's reasonable. Why? You're the parent, that's the child. The room's a mess. It's reasonable. A boss to ask an employee to clean the bathroom. Reasonable, isn't it? Why is it reasonable? Well, because he's the boss and you're the employee. It's reasonable. You're, you work there, right? It's reasonable. 
It's reasonable for Paul to appeal to you and me to live our lives this way. Why? Because we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We are owned by someone else. We are slaves, as he has said in Romans 6. We are no longer slaves to sin. The dominion of sin has been broken. We are slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to that which Christ demands and commands. We are that way by his work because of his work. And aren't you glad? And so it's reasonable for Paul, it's reasonable for God to ask of us to live this way, to not be conformed to the world. That's what you were rescued from. It really is a contradiction for a Christian to live like the world. Sadly, we're all a bunch of walking contradictions a lot of the time, but it really is a contradiction. Don't be conformed to the way of the world. Here, the world, the, Paul, the word that Paul uses here, it's cosmos. It's, this, it's the typical word for world, but as A.W. Pink puts it, there's probably seven different ways in which the word world is used in the New Testament. Here, it refers to the system that is antithetical to the demands of God, to his law, his, his word, that which he, 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 he gives to us to live and to walk by. So we don't, in the negative, we're not to be conformed to the world, but what? Instead of conformity, there is transformity. A transformation that occurs by the renewing of our corrupted minds. To our Christian experience, every one of us, unless you were born, unless you were rescued in the womb, you have brought into your Christian experience a whole bunch of bad habits, bad thinking, bad whatever, and you need to deal with that. Now, God knows this, and he understands it, and gives us the means by which we can resolve those things, and I'm going to get to those in just a minute. But our minds are transformed, no longer conformed to the way of the world, to those things that are at enmity with God, Oppose him, but our minds are transformed that we might understand what God's real will is for us. Notice how it's described. It's good and acceptable and even perfect. Now, how's this going to happen? That's great. Paul, that's wonderful. I love these two verses. These are really what some scholars or some commentators would describe as summation statements of the entirety of the Christian life. He doesn't say everything there is to say here. He goes on to describe some very specific things after verse 2. What I want to do is look at the means that you need to employ. Means that I would suggest if you ignore or turn away from you will do it to your peril. Why? Well, because the God of heaven, who is infinitely wise and smarter than all of you and smarter than, way smarter than me, way smarter than you, uh, gives these means to the church, not to fill your time and waste your energies on Sundays, the Lord's Day, not so one person can stand up here, exhaust himself preaching and bore you to death. No. That you might, what? Finish the race that you've been put on, that you've been charged to run. That you might have your mind conformed not to the world system, 
but to the system that God has outlined in His Word. Remember, you're Christians. You've been bought with the blood of the Lamb. You've been rescued from the misery of sinful existence. Your eyes have been opened to the truth through the work of the Spirit. You've been born from above. All of those theological truths that we all love so much is proven now in how we use the means that God has granted to the church. Now, I will warn you, these are not magic bullets. These aren't formula-operated things. Well, I listened to the sermon 1,206 times this month, and therefore, I'm spiritual and holy now. Not necessarily. What are you doing with it? Meditating upon it? Thinking on it? That's just by example. I'll get to that more in a minute. What are those means? Well, I've talked about those means. We, our catechisms tell us what those means are. They're the means of grace that we talk about this all the time here at this church. And just as an aside, since I'm kind of in this, uh, well, I don't know, freedom mode, every pastor loves to get there. It's also dangerous. But I was talking with someone just recently about what the elders of this church ask of the members of Providence. And I, and I actually boiled it down to time. It, it's about five and a half hours a week. And that's drive time included. I even gave you that. That is to say, this church is not into the programs of every other church in Evansville. And frankly, it won't ever be as long as I'm here. The elders can try to... I'd probably die in that hill. Because... God's given us the means we need to use them to the best of our ability. We don't need to separate families on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. That's what every other church does. And we wonder why our families are falling apart and our culture is a disaster. Well, you know, I don't think you have to be that smart to, to figure it out. The church is part of the problem. God has given us very simple means. In this church for three years, has been using them. I just simply keep putting that in front of you as often as I know how that you might seize them because I know, I know that if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ seizes the means, the simple and ordinary means of grace that God has given the church, the church will prosper to the point where it'll actually have to ask God to stop blessing them so much. And that was tongue-in-cheek. Well, what are those means? Let me just give you some in in different categorical ways, and I'm going to move relatively quickly through this. This is not, again, this is not complicated. You know every one of them. The question is, are you doing them? First, the means God gives, we must commit to Scripture itself. In Amos Amos chapter 8, there was this severe warning about a famine that was coming. I, I would argue that it's here. It's been here for quite a while, and the famine is not out there in the world because I'm not as worried about them as I am the church. The famine's in the church, not necessarily this church. What was that famine? That famine was for the very word of God itself, the bread of life that God gives. How we value the word of God will 
affect the way we treat it and respond to it. If you see, if you see the Bible as just any other book, if you see it as just a book that the pastor gets up and, and uses and, and makes me feel guilty, uh, then you're not really grasping what the Bible is. The Bible is the very mind of the living and true God. It's given, as the psalmist tells us, as a light unto our path, to guide our way, to direct our steps, without which we would have no light in the darkness of this world, and we would fall miserably into the pit of misery and despair. And that's just one aspect of it. Do you value the Word of God? Many of you spend quite a bit of time planning meals, eating to satisfy your physical bodies. Do you give that same level of attention to feeding your soul? Let me put it differently for you social media nutters, which is just about everybody in this room. How much time do you spend on social media compared to how much time you spend meditating on the Word of God? I don't know. I'm not keeping track that closely. How much time do I? Do we really see it as essential to our spiritual well-being? Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by Facebook alone. Man does not live by Twitter. Man does not live by bread alone. You need bread. But it proceeds or lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God himself. Well, why is that so important? Why does it even matter? Well, first, the Bible itself is infallible. You know what that is. There's no error in it. It's complete. That is to say, nothing new needs to be added. God does not need to speak to us today as he did in the days of old. We do not need a burning bush in the back of the church to speak to me when I don't know what to preach this Sunday. I'll just go back there and do a visit with the bush. No, I have the bush. It's right here. But I have more than that because I have the Spirit of God working through that which he has penned. It's complete. It's infallible. It's complete. It's authoritative. It speaks authoritatively. With or without me speaking. It's sufficient for every circumstance and issue that may, I may face in this world. It's efficacious. It accomplishes exactly what God wants it to accomplish in the lives of his people. What's he want to do for his people? He wants to bless them. He uses his word to do it. Well, how can we then take seriously the word of God and commit to Scripture in the new year? You know, I'm not one of these people. This is going to shock you maybe, I guess. I don't know. Most pastors would not say this, but I will because I'm not most pastors. I don't care if you read the whole Bible in a year or not. I I don't. I do. It's my plan. That's my purpose. That's what I do. I like to do it that way. There's reasons for that. I have my reasons. That doesn't make you more holy if you read it 12 times this year. That's nice. What I'm interested in is that you're in it at all. Whether you spend an exorbitant amount of time in one book, going through it over and over again and draining it for everything you can get out of it. Wonderful! Whatever the means is, you have to meditate on Scripture. It's not just enough to read. Joshua was told as much. Meditate on the book of the law day and night. If you do so, you'll have good success. Of course you have to read it. You should study it. You should memorize Scripture 
the occasion allows for it. I know as I get older, it's, well, it's a little harder. Some of you know what I mean by that. I have to work at it more. But Scripture needs to be in the center, not of just my individual life, but my family. And, of course, as a pastor of the church, in front of the church. That's why there's, if you notice, there's so much Scripture in worship. Why? Well, what else are we going to say? What else is there to say? We need to hear from God more, not less. And so we engage in the Word of God. We must commit to it both on an individual and a family level. If we're going to be transformed and not conformed to the world, we must have the light of God's Word in front of us. We must pray. Word, prayer, I'm getting to the sacraments in a second. Pray. Of course we need to pray individually. What was it that Matthew Henry said? You may as soon, you may as soon find a living man that does not breathe. Anybody know someone like that? Someone who's running around, living, that's not breathing? Okay? As a living Christian that does not pray. Here's the problem. There's a lot of living Christians running around that don't pray. They don't plead with the God of heaven. They don't commit to this this means that God has given that they might commune with the creator of the universe and unburden their soul because it is a joyful duty that we have been given by the word of God. Philippians 4, 6, 1 Timothy 2, 1, Ephesians 6, 18 and 19, just to name a few. Why do we pray? Why, Why should you pray? As a family, why should you pray together? Why should you pray individually? Why should you pray corporately as a church? Well, because we are needy, independent creatures, and this is one of the means that God has given to us that we might set those needs upon him. Cast all your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. Well, how do we do that? It's through the means of prayer. We pray because of the needs that we have and experience. We have not because we ask not. And... You don't get it sometimes because you ask to spend it on your own sinful passions instead of the glory of God's kingdom. But here's the thing. And I know, again, it's academic, right? Theologically, it's simple. Duh. God hears you when you pray. You went to seminary to tell me that? Yes. God's people forget this, I think, too often. You're not talking to yourself when you're praying. You're communing and praying to the God of the universe. And guess what? A billion people might be speaking to him at the same time, and it's as though you're the only one talking to him. Let that sit around in your head. For I can talk to two or three people at once, and I'm overwhelmed. God cares about his children. He gives you the means to communicate with him, to commune with him, to unite with him, to pray for things agreeable to his will, for the desires of your own heart. Do you pray? Paul prayed. He opened many of his letters that way. He prayed with a posture as we are taught to pray for things agreeable to the will of God. Well, how do you know those things? Well, first, the promises of God, they're yes and amen in Christ. You can pray those definitively. They're his will. God, I pray it's your will that you'll be with me when I go to surgery. I I hear prayers like that. I think to myself, okay, you don't know God's promises. Pretty sure he's promised to do that. 
So don't say it that way. Say something like, you have promised to be with me. What? You can't say that to God. Yes, you can. Prayer is, in some sense, arguing as a lawyer to a just judge. And the only book you can use to argue with that just judge is uh, the first point, his word. He'll respond to that because he wrote it. It cannot be broken. We pray. We pray as individuals. I trust you're doing that. I give you a prayer guide every month. Well, I think it's been every month for quite a while. Anyway, why do I do that? Because I'm bored? I got nothing else to do during the week or the month? No, I give that to you to encourage prayer. Why? For the church, for the body, for the needs of this congregation, whether it's general and specific or general or specific. I started including more specific things in it within reason. Pray. Use it as a family in family worship. You don't have to use that. Use something else. But just pray. What about the prayer meetings we have as a church? I know. Here we go. You're thinking you always gets to get on that hobby horse. It's not a hobby horse. It's not a hobby horse because we have the examples of the apostles in the New Testament about corporate prayer meetings. There's something uniquely different about that over against my private prayer life. I'm not going to read all these passages. If you're really interested, you can jot these down. But in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we see a, we see a prayer meeting. Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, another prayer meeting. Acts chapter 12, 1 to 5 and verse 12, another prayer meeting. Some of you are very faithful in this area. I think I've been praying for two years, maybe more. That God would bless our prayer meeting. Now look, I understand providence, okay? I'm not unreasonable. Some of you have situations in which work carries you very late into the evening. And okay, I understand all that. But try, anyway, to use this means not just individually, but also as a body of believers. Church history, if it hasn't taught us anything, has taught us one thing, and that revival has often broken out in prayer meetings. Wow, really? Yes. And then finally, commit to worship. Of course, this is a subset of the whole idea of the Word of God, but it's different as well. In the sense that we as a people need to prepare for it. It's not just the pastor's job to prepare for worship. I obviously do quite a bit of that. The bulletin, which I really don't enjoy writing. I don't. I admit it. But I do it. That's why there's mistakes, probably because I'm going too fast. And The sermon, of course, doesn't write itself. But you need to prepare for it as well. I'm giving you the means during the week to do that. In Exodus chapter 16 People are called, being called into the very presence of God. There was a preparation that was going on. In Leviticus chapters 1 through 9, there's a preparation that's going on in those nine chapters for the worship of God. And then what happens in chapter 10? Well, it begins, and then there's this gross interruption. And then in 16, it repeats itself. And then we have, again, another corporate gathering of God's people. But it was all from and flowing out of the preparation of 
God's people for worship. But worship is not just preparing, it's also active. When you're here, participate. This is not a passive enterprise. Like amen at the end of the hymn? Three years now I've been saying that same thing. But anyway, respond to God. That's why our worship looks the way it does. God speaks, you respond. Look at the bulletin. God speaks, you respond. God speaks, you respond. That's what worship is. It's a dialogue between the God of heaven and his people. And that's what you're doing. We have carefully constructed the order of worship that way that you might always be responding to him. Listen to the word preached, the ordinary means of grace. Larger Catechism 160. I'm not even going to read it. You've heard me read it many times. Confer with it. Meditate on the preached word. And then, of course, faithful participation and preparation for the sacraments of the church that Christ has given, that he might help us in this journey and this transformation that is to occur in our minds, the transformation from the world system to the system of righteousness and holiness. It's not just an exercise that we do on Sunday morning. Christ gave the sacraments to his church to help his people. Why? Because we have weak faith. We have to touch things. You know, I remember as a kid, I'd go into a store, you know, and I couldn't just look at the item on the shelf. I had to touch it. Why? As my father would say. Yeah, look with your eyes, not your hands. Why do I have to touch the thing? I don't really believe it's real until I put my fingers on it. Who knows? They're sensible signs. They're designed to help us, to encourage us in the Christian life. Do you think about the sacraments often? Are you prepared for them? Do you recognize what they represent and how they help you? These are the basics by which our minds are conformed to the truth of God's word and all that he has commanded us to do. A church that will not do these means, the word, the sacraments and prayer, I don't know what they are, but I'm hard-pressed to call them a church. This is the means God has given to the church. The tools. The tools laying around don't help many people. We have to use them. All of us need to be reminded of these things and use them in our Christian daily life. In home, placing the Word of God in front of our kids on a regular basis. Family worship and prayer. In the church, preparing for worship and prayer. Seizing the means that God has given. Trusting the Spirit's going to bless them to the good of His people. Because He will. As we participate by faith. We see a church, I, I suspect, not necessarily this church, but we, can see, we could hear, but we see a church that is anemic because it has neglected these ordinary means of grace. they got everything else going on on Sundays, Monday, Tuesday. But somehow it all gets lost. The centrality of the Word of God is relegated to the corner. Prayer is pushed off to something other, more Bible studies. I'd rather have more prayer meetings, honestly. The sacraments, we'll get to it, maybe, sort of. And if we do, it's some kind of mystical enterprise. 
We need to seize these things. God has given them to the church. We say we're grieved over the state of the culture. It's godless actions and morals, but the fact is, if we are not seeking first the kingdom of God in these areas, the problem isn't the world. The problem is us. We're the salt and light of a dying and dark world. That's what Jesus said. How are we going to be salty? How are we going to be useful in the world if we don't use the means that God has given? You can't blame the world for acting like the world. I don't. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But we ought to blame God's people for acting like the world. And so we need these things. God has given his people these in a very gracious way. He didn't just say, go fend for yourself and figure it out, and maybe it'll all be okay, I don't know. No, he's ensured us by giving these things to us of his love for us that he might carry us safely to our heavenly rest. But we have to use the means. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption. What are those? Well, they are his ordinances, especially the word sacraments and prayer. All which, now listen, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. The issue is urgent. The appeal is made. Will we seize these things, thus transforming our minds and our lives to that which God has called us to do? Ignore them to your peril. Seize them, and we will have to ask God to stop blessing us because it will come in ways that we we really can't imagine. We do it to his glory, and he gives them for our good. Amen. Our Father, as we turn our attention to a new year and we have heard what is indeed very simple truths, the basics of Christianity, really. We know that without the working of your Spirit, we we are doomed. And so we pray that you would grant your Spirit to your people, and we would love your Word and prayer and sacraments. We would see them as good gifts from a loving Father. May we lay hold of them, seize them, May they strengthen us, and may they help us to be more and more like our Lord, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.